0: Matthew chapter 5. Did you know that dieting is a $35 billion per year industry? We are all about getting rid of those extra pounds. It shouldn't surprise us because the food industry in America spends $30 billion a year advertising, telling us we should eat more of their food. Now, I know there's diets that have been around. Uh, Some of them are fad diets. Some of them... Uh, work. Some of them don't work. I found one of the best diets ever. I think some of you are going to like it. I know I do. It's called the stress diet. For breakfast, you eat a half a grapefruit, one piece whole wheat toast, eight ounces of skim milk. For lunch, four ounces lean broiled chicken breast, one cup steamed zucchini, one Oreo cookie. Mid-afternoon snack, rest of the package of Oreo cookies, one quart of Rocky Road ice cream, and one jar of hot fudge. Now that's my kind of diet. For dinner, two loaves of garlic bread, large mushroom and pepperoni pizza, large pitcher of root beer, three Milky Ways, an entire frozen cheesecake eaten directly from the freezer. Now we're cooking. We Americans love to eat. We're culinary enthusiasts. In fact, within about a seven-mile radius of right here, you can get any kind of food you'd want, any cuisine, whether it's Japanese or Mexican or Thai, and even some we probably haven't even heard of. We often ask a question to each other after a service. We will say, hey, what are you hungry for? That's the title of this message. What are you hungry for? Now, we know what we mean when we ask that. We mean, are you hungry for Mexican, Thai, Japanese, Chinese? But I'm asking you in a spiritual sense, what's important to you? What are you hungry for? When I first came to faith in Christ, it was 1973. It was the summer. I was up in San Jose, California, running from Christians. People were telling me about Jesus, and all my friends were dropping like flies. That's how I put it. One afternoon, I was all alone in my brother's apartment, and I turned on the television. I thought I was safe. And there on the television was a Billy Graham crusade. And I thought, okay, well, nobody's here. This is safe. I'm all alone. Went into the refrigerator, popped open a beer, and sat down to watch a Billy Graham crusade. Talk about a strange mix, beer and Billy. Hey, I was a heathen. I was sitting and I was watching the television. And as he was speaking through that crusade, I remember thinking, well, I'm glad I'm in this little apartment because I know if I was in that arena, I know I would get up and I'd walk forward and I'd do what those people are doing. And I thought, Phew, I'm safe. As, As I was thinking those thoughts, Billy Graham did what Billy Graham always does at a crusade. He, at the end, turns his eyes right into the television camera. So it looks like he's looking at you on the other side of the TV. Now I'm thinking, I'm safe. And Billy turns toward the television cameras and he says, if you're watching by television, you can know Christ. (laughs) And I went, whoa! I was spooked. I turned off the TV set quickly, ran into my bedroom, and I had a little talk with God. Basically, I gave him my life. I said, I don't know why you'd want me, but you died for me. I don't get it, but I'm not going to knock it. And so I receive you as my Lord and Savior. I did not feel any dramatic thing. I didn't hear uh, thunder from heaven. I didn't get warm fuzzies. I didn't even shed a tear. But I'll tell you what happened to me. I changed. Things gradually, surely, progressively, definitely started to change. And you know what one of the most dramatic changes was? My appetite spiritually speaking. The things I used to be so hungry for didn't capture my attention. The things I never thought I would be caught doing, I was hungry for. Buying a Bible, reading it a lot, going to church a lot, hanging out with Christians. I didn't even like Christians up until that point. I noticed a hunger came, an appetite came for spiritual things. In fact, Shortly after that, an old friend called, and he goes, Dude, let's party. And I said, Not interested. And he said, What? What do you mean you're not interested? I said, I'm not interested. It would be for me such a step down after what I've tasted. And I said, Ray, let me describe it to you this way. It's like all my life I've been fed hamburger helper, TV dinners, and somebody just bought me my first Really good meal at a gourmet restaurant. And I'm not going back. Because what I've tasted now is so much better than what I used to have. However, spiritual appetite is something that must be cultivated because the junk food in the world can be awfully appealing from time to time. This morning we're going to look at one Beatitude. It's the sixth verse. And so far the Beatitudes have been. Uh, uh, an emptying process. Now we begin the filling process. So far it's been negative. Now it becomes positive. Poverty in spirit, that's negative. It causes you to mourn. That's negative. It produces in you a meekness. And now there's this hunger, this filling, this desire for something different, and that's righteousness. We're going to read verse 6, but let's go back again to verse 1 and get the whole flow of the paragraph. And seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him, and then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. This morning, I want to give you three descriptions of this follower of Christ as depicted in this verse. First of all, happy people are hungry people. That's the first principle. Happy people are hungry people. That's the whole idea here, isn't it? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst. It speaks of passion, ambition, somebody who's enthusiastic about a goal. A lot of times we'll ask people, in fact, it's sort of become the favorite question in the last, oh, five, ten years, even among Christians. What are you passionate for? What's your passion? In other words, what is the master governing drive that pushes you along in life? What are you enthusiastic for? For instance, people who are passionate about athletics, you know what they're called? Pros. Professionals. Somebody who's really passionate about a sport usually becomes a professional. Gordon McDonald writes about one of his buddies who is a pro football player and uh, the week before his team was going to play the Dallas Cowboys. uh, He talked about preparing for it. He talked about spending all day, every day, practicing on the field, every afternoon going to the gym and working out, and then every evening till midnight he would watch football films and study every move of every player on the other team. And this is what his friend told him. He said, hey, I want to beat those men. I want to hit them so hard that if they come into my zone, when they're lying on the ground, they will look up to the sky with glassy eyes and pray that there won't have to be another play in the game. That's passion. It's the pursuit of excellence that makes winners out of people. But the description doesn't just speak of passion. It speaks of a very intense kind of passion. It's not, blessed are those who casually snack on righteousness. Uh, Blessed are those who would occasionally nibble on righteousness. But notice the term is a very intense descriptor. Blessed are those who do hunger and thirst for righteousness. Now probably very few, if any of us, know what that means. To really be hungry and thirsty. I know we we talk about it. We use hyperbole in our culture, don't we? We haven't eaten for a few hours, and what do we say? I'm starving to death. Really? You are? You're starving to death? As if if you don't eat, you're going to like keel over dead? Now we know it's just an exaggeration. And we'll even say... That was a big meal. I ate a ton. I don't think so. You'd feel a lot different had you eaten a ton. But the word speaks of a very intense passion, hunger and thirst. The first time I flew into Bombay, India, I'll never forget it. The plane is landing. I had just eaten a pretty good meal for an airplane meal. And uh, that can be stretching it sometimes, as you know. Airplane food. It's like an oxymoron. It's airplane food. But it was a good meal. We're flying into Bombay. We're flying over cardboard and cloth shacks, miles of them. And then we got out of the plane and did ministry among some of those people. And then I discovered what it meant to be hungry and to be thirsty. Or the time I went into the Sudan and watched whole villages of people Their only clothing was a food sack from a drop, a humanitarian drop, weeks before. And they would take the sack and cut a hole in it for the neck and holes for the arms, and they'd wear it. They were on the brink of starvation. And the culture to which Jesus spoke knew about hunger and thirst. In fact, the day laborer in Israel ate meat once a week. That's all they could afford. They were literally on the brink of starvation. Then when it came to thirst, it was even more pronounced because, you see, they couldn't go to the sink and turn the faucet or to the refrigerator and push the lever or get bottled Evian at the store. They depended upon well water, and in that part of the world, and that culture was very, very scarce. A starving person and a thirsty person has one, single, all-consuming desire. What is it? To get food or to get water. Now we're getting the idea of blessed are those who hunger and thirst. It's not just a passion. It's an intense kind of passion, an all-consuming passion. Socrates was approached by one of his students. The student said, Master Socrates, what's the best way to learn a subject? Socrates walked this young student to a river, put his arm on his shoulder. The guy thought he was going to get a little talking to by the old philosopher. <laughs> he didn't. Socrates took the man's head and plunged it under the water, and he kept it there, and he kept it there, and he kept it there, until finally, in desperation, the young student broke loose, and looked at Socrates like, what are you, a nut? I thought you were a wise guy and Socrates said student when I had your head under the water what is the one thing you wanted more than anything else in the world well the young kids gasping (gasps) he said air good said Socrates when you want knowledge as much as you just wanted air you'll learn blessed oh how happy to be envied blissful are those who hunger and thirst. So it speaks of a passion. It speaks of an intense passion. But it's more than that. It speaks of an intense spiritual passion. It is a driving ambition for spiritual things. A driving ambition for spiritual things. Question to you this morning. How is your spiritual passion? If you were to measure it on a scale of 1 to 10, don't do it out loud. If you were to measure your own spiritual passion, what's it like? How hungry are you for God? Is your passion today what it was ten years ago when you first came to Christ? I hope you say not even close. It's much more. You've probably all heard of um, the Screw Tape Letters. Have you heard of that? Raise your hand if you have. If you read the book, if you haven't read it, it's a great book. It's by C.S. Lewis. It's one of his classics. And uh, C.S. Lewis said when he wrote the book, it was almost his undoing because he had to put himself in the place of being the devil. He wrote it from Satan's perspective. And in the book, the devil is teaching his young nephew, Wormwood, how to be a good demon, if there is such a thing, how to tempt people. And uh, he says, C.S. Lewis writes as if the devil is saying, his goal is not wickedness, but indifference. He writes... Keep the prospect, the patient, comfortable at all costs. If he should become concerned about anything of importance, encourage him to think about his lunch plans. And then he writes, I, the devil, will always see to it that there are bad people. Your job, my dear Wormwood, is to provide me with the people who do not care. Apathy is the enemy of spirituality. If your spirituality is confined to a a once-a-week episode, you are on your way down, if that's all it is. That's not a hunger or a thirst. Now, let me uh, give you a couple examples, if I could, of people, I think, in the Bible who really did this, who really had this kind of intense spiritual craving. So it's not just a concept. It lives. Number one, Moses. Now, come on. Moses was a guy who saw stuff we'll never see spiritually. Moses had a bush talk to him. He had a body of water open up before him. He had God's presence dwelling in a cloud and in a pillar of fire. He saw plagues on his enemies. And yet, with all of that, it wasn't enough. At one point he said, Lord, show me your glory. And, you know, God said, I I can't, Moses. If I do, you'll die. But he wanted it all. I think of another one, and that's King David. What a blessed guy David was. The shepherd king of Israel, a young shepherd out in the wilderness, promoted to the king of the entire nation. Promises of a covenant, of an everlasting covenant. Promises of a Messiah. And yet listen to what David wrote in Psalm 63. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh longs for you in a dry and thirsty land where there is no water. And in Psalm 42, as the deer pants for the water brooks, so pants my soul for you, O God. So Moses is one, David is one, Paul is another. Paul the Apostle. An intense spiritual hunger that never let up. Paul the Apostle traveled the world, raised up many churches, saw a lot of people come to Christ, watched God do many miracles, and yet at the end of 30 years... He wrote, oh, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable even to his death. And he said, I'm forgetting the things which are in the past. I'm looking forward and reaching forth to those things which are before. An intense spiritual passion. In the 1970s, we were called Jesus freaks. Some of you remember those days? You carry a Bible, Jesus freak. Now, today they're more polite. They just call us fundamentalists. Oh, you're one of those fundamentalists. (laughs) Fanatical fundamentalists. Hey, you know what a fanatic is? A fanatic is somebody who loves Jesus more than you. That's all. And when somebody loves Jesus more than we do, we say, well, that person's really fanatic. In the third century, in Alexandria, Egypt, a bishop by the name of Athanasius was preaching the truth and he was stirring up trouble. He was stirring up so much trouble that one of his buddies said, Athanasius, the whole world is against you. Athanasius stood up and said, good, then Athanasius will be against the whole world. Sometimes we see young Christians and we see their zeal, their fervor, their devotion, they're carrying their Bibles, they're reading it, they're telling everybody about Jesus, and then we dismiss it, sort of, you know, a backhanded, oh, that's sweet. I'm glad they're so into it. I remember those days. And we dismiss it and it's sort of like, don't worry, we'll, we'll handle it. We'll get them stagnant like us after a while. Let them hang around us. We'll just make them nice and stale. Don't be afraid of that intense spiritual fervor. That's what we're talking about. So happy people are hungry people. Number two, happy people are holy people. Because look at what is said in verse 6, Blessed, oh, how happy are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. It's, It's not just being passionate. The virtue isn't passion. The virtue isn't, I'm hungry and I'm thirsty. What are you hungry and thirsty for? What is your appetite for? What are you passionate about? The Constitution gives us the right of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, but most of the people I meet are pursuing it and never finding it. It's for the right thing. And what is the right thing? It's righteousness. What does that mean? That's a Bible word. We find it everywhere. But what does righteousness mean? Well, let me give you a few other words that I think are synonyms of it. Rightness. Rightness. The state of being right. Not just right about a position, but being a right person. Uprightness. Or right onness would be another one. Some people say righteousness is our standing before God. That's true. Other people say it's your uprightness before men. That's also true. I think it's all of the above. And I think what Jesus is saying and what the Bible means here when it speaks of righteousness are three facets of it. Number one, it's that hunger to possess righteousness. And and that's what being poor in spirit, mourning, And meekness is all about. It's that pouring out. I recognize before God I'm empty. I'm naked. There's nothing in and of myself that's any good. I cannot earn favor with God. I can't earn His righteousness. I must have it given to me or imputed. That's the theological term. It's the desire to possess a right standing before God. We remember Paul the Apostle who at one time looked to his old religious ways. And he wrote about them in Philippians chapter 3. He gave his pedigree. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. I was circumcised the eighth day, the tribe of Benjamin, on and on. And he said, concerning the righteousness which comes by keeping the law, I was blameless. In other words, I got straight A's in my Hebrew school. In my religious circles, I was top dog. But then, he says, But I want to be found in Him, not having my own righteousness which comes from the law, but the righteousness which comes through Christ. That's what I mean by a hunger to possess righteousness. Churches are full of religious people who feel smug but are not right with God. Second, it speaks of a hunger to practice righteousness to live right kind of lives. It's a strong appetite for living godly, upright lives, or let's call it another good Bible term, obedient to God, where we are obedient to God. Again, do you see the flow? It's a pouring out in the first couple of Beatitudes, poor in spirit, mourning, meek. Remember what meekness means? Me, Right? You look at yourself, me, And now because you see that, Now you look upwards and you have a desire, now being empty, to be filled with not you, but with him and with his righteousness. You know what the difference is between spiritual infancy and spiritual maturity? I'll give it one word. Appetite. Appetite. The difference between infancy and maturity is appetite. It's not how many years you have been a Christian How many years you've sat in pews and chairs and sung hymns and carried Bibles and attended Bible studies. That is not always an indication of maturity. It's your appetite. I commend this church for looking to the past, but I hope your relationship with Christ is in the present and in the future. Charles Spurgeon writes, In the church of God, there are children who are 70 years old, Yes, little children displaying all the infirmities of declining years. One would not like to say of a man of 80 that he has scarcely cut his wisdom teeth. And yet there are such. On the other hand, there are fathers in the church of God, wise, stable, instructed, who are comparatively young men. The Lord can cause his people to grow rapidly and far outstrip their years. So I think what he is saying is we have a hunger to possess righteousness right before God, a hunger to practice righteousness, be right before people. And third, I think it speaks of a hunger to promote righteousness, to spread it around. You know, when you're touched by God, you don't want to keep it a secret. Well, now that I'm righteous, it's us four and no more. It's just us. We're the righteous ones over here in this little corner. I hope your desire is to spread the reign of Christ as far as you can go to promote righteousness. Now, we know that will never really, totally, fully, completely happen until Jesus comes with his reign of righteousness upon the earth. But we're taught to pray, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I've been a pastor now 23 years, and I've discovered... A few things about how Christians respond to the world around them. Number one, and it's not the right response, is the response of intimidation. We get awfully intimidated by a big, bad, ungodly, wicked world who doesn't see eye to eye with Christians. They don't like us. And the need is so large and I feel so inadequate. And so I think, well, what could I ever do? So we don't do anything. We're intimidated. Response number two, isolation. And that's where we see this big, bad, messy world that doesn't agree with Christians. We have an intense dislike for it, and our obligation is to protect ourselves from it and to protect our families from it and to protect our close Christian friends from it. It's isolation. It's an escape mentality. In fact, I've even talked to people over the years, and as I talk to them, it's like we're all wanting a Christian village. Wouldn't it be great just to have a whole neighborhood and everybody in every house is a Christian? And the guy that works the pump at the gas station's a Christian? And the guy at the restaurant's a Christian? All the police force are Christians? All the politicians are Christians? Hey, that's called heaven. <laughs> Ain't going to happen here. In fact, Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. The the, the focus now is to say, not how can I get myself away from the world, there they are, here I am, but to say to the world, here we are, we're coming to get you, in Jesus' name. (laughs) And turn on the light and spread out the salt. Edmund Burke said, all that is necessary for evil to abound is for good men to do nothing. There's a third aspect, and we'll close with this. Happy people are hungry people. Happy people are holy people. Here's the third. Happy people are hearty people. Full, filled. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They shall be filled. Kortazo is the word that is used here for full, filled. And kortazo means to satisfy with food. The root word means fodder or grass, And it was a word used to describe the feeding of animals who once fed, had enough, and walked away from the feeding trough. Cortazzo is the feeling you get after a good meal. After lunch today, you're going to go, ah, it was great, had enough. You are cortazzo, man. You are full. You don't need any more. Here's the point. Jesus is promising Total satisfaction to anyone whose intense desire is to be filled and walk in and promote righteousness. That's what he's promising. Now, in listening to me, I hope some of you picked up on the paradox of what I just said and what Jesus is saying here. Isn't it a paradox to say the more you hunger for what you don't have, the more you're going to be filled? You don't have it. You're hungry for it. You want more of it but while you do that you will continually be fulfilled it's really not a contradiction if i went to my favorite steak restaurant or seafood restaurant and i said give me a big old honkin' steak or if you're not a, if you're a vegetarian give me a big old broccoli piece or whatever it would be <laughs> and you ate that meal and it was satisfying to you you are now full you are filled you're satisfied does that mean you'll never eat that meal ever again in your life? Will you walk out and say, that was the best seafood I ever had. I will not need to eat that ever again. Of course not. It's the very satisfaction of the meal you just ate that prompts you to hunger for it again. And that's the idea here. You will be filled. It will be a continual feast. Question. And think about it before you answer it in your own head. Are, are, you, are you getting bored with God? Is God stuff, spiritual stuff, sort of been there, done that? And that's why you have turned of late to other things to fulfill your life and satisfy you other quests. And that's why you're still not full. That's why you're still very empty. You've, you've tried so much. And let me just tell you, you're going to be empty. Nothing else will satisfy. And you might say, well, how do you know that? You haven't tried everything. And I haven't tried everything, and so I'm going to pursue everything. Well, can I tell you the words of a man who did try everything and had the money to do it? His name is Solomon. He tried it all, knowledge, buying things. And he said, vanity, vanity, or emptiness, emptiness, or soap bubbles, soap bubbles, however you want to translate it, it's just a big nothing. There's no happiness in it. I had a businessman in my office a few years ago. He was a very wealthy businessman in the state of New Mexico. Everybody heard his name. He sat in my office and he wept like a little baby. And he said, I have spent my life acquiring all of my goals. And Skip, I don't know why. I don't know for what. Because I am not a satisfied man. What was it all for? Uh, 30 minutes later, he prayed to receive Christ. i got to tell you something. He looked a lot different going out than coming in. Something was just changing in him, and he knew it. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They shall be fulfilled, filled, satiated, satisfied. Not only will you be filled, but others will benefit. And I want to I close by reading something to you. A comparison of two men. Have you ever heard of Jonathan Edwards before? Anybody at all? Has anyone ever heard of Max Jukes? Probably not. And here's why. Max Jukes lived in New York. He did not believe in Christ or in Christian training. He refused to take his children to the church even when they asked to go. He has had 1,026 descendants. 300 of them were sent to prison for an average term of 13 years. 190 were public prostitutes, 680 were admitted alcoholics. His family thus far cost the state in excess of $420,000. They made no contributions to society. Jonathan Edwards lived in the same state at the same time as Jukes. He loved the Lord and saw that his children were in church every Sunday as he served the Lord to the best of his ability. He has had 929 descendants And 430 of those were ministers. 86 became university professors. 13 became university presidents. 75 authored good books. Seven were elected to the U.S. Congress. One was vice president of this nation. His family never cost the state one cent and has contributed immeasurably to the life of plenty in this land today. You, You might say, that's a coincidence. I say you're nuts if you think that. There's a trail that you can follow to a righteous person. Heavenly Father, we now just bow before you and we pause because in a moment we're going to be singing and in a moment we're going to be walking and hugging and talking and leaving. But right now we're doing nothing but sitting before you. And we're thinking about what we just heard. And it's so easy to hear truth and want to deflect it and think, oh, I know somebody who could stand to hear this when all the while your spirit is trying to speak to us. It could be that some here are very good, upright, religious people who, in all honesty, deep inside, they're not right with God. And so, Lord... We pray that you, our God, would lovingly deal with those by bringing them to salvation in Christ and Him alone. Some have never come to Christ. Some made some decision some years ago, but it didn't mean a whole lot. It certainly doesn't mean much now. It's episodal. Every so often there might be a church attendance or or something of that nature. Lord, you are speaking. And we pray that some would answer. And as our heads are closed, as we're praying right here, friend, God didn't bring you here by accident. He brought you here for a reason. And that reason is righteousness, to get right with God, to live and to be in right standing before your God. And it comes by... Turning your life over to Him. Saying yes to Him. Being willing to repent of your sin and give your life wholly and completely without reservation to Jesus Christ. You will be fulfilled if you do. Now as we're praying, if you want to do that, I want to pray for you. But i got to know who you are. So as we're praying, I want you to raise your hand up. And by raising it up, you're saying, here's my hand. Skip. Here it is. Pray for me. Because I'm going to do that. I'm coming back to the Lord or I'm giving my life to Him for the first time. Raise it up and keep it up. God bless you and you toward the back. Anybody else? This man right over here to my left. A few of you. Three or four of you. Anybody else? Raise your hand up. Up in the balcony. Up in the front toward the back, right over here to my right and toward the back. God bless you. Lord, so many hands represent so many hearts. You know each one. Some are broken. All are hungry. Fill each one May they just experience a douse of refreshment by your Holy Spirit. May their lives never, ever be the same after today. May they never return to just business as usual, church as usual. Bring new life, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.